Mostly here on the BCP cast, we like to talk about how to do business continuity, the lessons learned from the incidents, and tips on how to improve your resilience. Last season, though, we had a couple of episodes on the industry itself how to tackle diversity in business continuity, and how to have a successful business continuity career, and they were popular. So we're doing it again. In this episode, we're going to try and cover a few different topics, all under the banner of working in business continuity. These were all things our guests were passionate to talk about. In our interviews, we have some questions that we like to ask, but we also chat about what's important to our guests and what's going on in the world at the moment. We talked about opportunities to break into the industry, business continuity degrees, the best industries to work in, and how to improve welfare for BC professionals. We'll start with Dean Beaumont on what he's done at Experian and in his previous roles to help people get their first start in the industry. I do think it's important to mention the the opportunities to give to people. Yeah, so I talked about the internships um, that I did, and I still you know, still do. So really, really excited about that because I've seen some massive benefits of having those guys come in to our teams and work with us and work alongside us for a year where they're part of the team and they learn and develop and grow but actually we get a lot of fresh thinking and a lot of ideas a lot of innovation and quite a lot of energy out of those guys the average kind of you know bc person is probably you know something like me i.e 50 odd white bloke uh, and I'm, i'm really trying to mix that up and change it up a bit by doing that I think the other thing that I probably haven't touched on yet is the opportunities of being able to give to members of the armed forces who were leaving the armed forces. So I got involved with a charity called Officers Association to try and support really guys and girls who are in transition, leaving the armed forces, looking for opportunities in various sectors and industries just to try and think about what kind of work would they be suitable for. And of course, most of them never heard of anything that we do, yet it's actually in many ways you know quite well suited to it so it's a good way to pick up talent but at the same time provide opportunities so um, that's another thing that's worked out particularly well and I've got a couple of guys in my team now who have both served in the British Army who have now joined the team and have just gone permanent as members of the team so they've found their new career. If you're able to take on placement students you should definitely investigate it there's a big demand for businesses to take them on. So our first year, we took two young ladies from Nottingham Trent who are both studying marketing. One is now working in the risk department full-time uh, and the other one uh, is looking for opportunities in business continuity. She's got a CBCI and everything else. So that's worked out really well. And we've just got another guy in from Coventry um, who's just joined us. So um, he's... Yeah, he's come from commentary, having done uh, risk and disaster management. And speaking of Coventry University, Simon Freeston talked about his degree and his experiences there. I've often wondered about how practical the courses would be. Are the students just taught the theory and then thrown out into the real world to learn how to apply it? Actually, it sounds practical, varied, and really pretty incredible. I loved it as a degree. We did so much. First year, we covered 
quite a lot of um, like a wide variety. So we did a lot more on disaster management, the geophysics side, looking at um, aid work. There were three, what, four versions of my course when I studied it. I think there's only two now. But there was straight to disaster management, uh, reconstruction and disaster management, which looked at more aid elements. So I've got a couple of friends who did that. One of them is out in Gambia at the moment. Disaster management, emergency planning, and global security and disaster management, which always sounded so so much cooler, but also had a lot more work than we did. <laughs> so because they had the international relations element to it as well. So yeah, so kind of first year we covered all all sorts. We covered the um, reconstruction, redevelopment, like learning about aid aid working and how to redevelop countries after famines and stuff like that and what goes in there, a bit of the emergency planning, a bit of the science behind disasters, um, the basics of emergency planning. And then as the years progressed, went more specific. So my role went down into um, more into the emergency planning. One of the funnest courses we used to do was uh, team leadership. So it was all about working well together in a team, kind of very similar to my Uniform Public Services course. Um, but the highlights were always going to Wales to a place called the Outreach Centre, which do all the training for heart teams, the, the hazardous area response teams, fire service, they, they do mountain rescue training and stuff like that. And they've got this amazing area. And we were very lucky to be able to go there because it is only for emergency services. But one of the guys lectured was our lecturer. So that's how we got to go on it. I think I think doing a placement was definitely better. Um, definitely the best way to do it because it's all well and good learning all the theory behind command and control and situational awareness and how to run an emergency. But then when you actually find out how it does work, you're like, ah, most of that stuff I can forget. But I learned a few things. And having that kind of cross between theory and practical is key because you can explain you understand why things are happening because you can you know the theory behind it but then you've got the practical experience of okay i know why all these people are arguing and don't want to talk to each other so how do i then deal with that to get everyone on the same page kind of moving forward our interviewees simon Julie Goddard and James Krask all worked in local government at some point in their careers. And several guests from previous seasons have done so too. I always get the impression they have mixed feelings about it. It's important work and they get great experience. But there's overwhelming demands. And often a lack of resources. Dean shared a conversation he had with a new practitioner who joined him from a council. Yeah, definitely. I, I would say for sure the got one of the guys I used to work with. At, uh, he um, he came from a um, local authority background. You know, he he said he couldn't believe it was like night and day the difference between the resources that are available to you as part of a financial services institution versus you know public service and uh, kind of sad really in that respect. But as a professional, you know, surely you want to be able to do stuff right, um, but then once you're in the financial services world, it's quite difficult to, to kind of leave. Uh, 
because it's a regulated industry as well, there's an awful lot of um, resources put into emergency planning, business continuity, resilience, disaster recovery. All of those things are certainly taken very seriously in that sphere. I didn't realise how stressful local government was until I left it. It is good to do, um, but I think it is a, it's a good stepping stone. Like people who go into local government emergency planning, there are the ones who go in for a couple of years, and there's the ones who are lifers as such. And it, it depends what what you want. Um, local government does give you quite a safe, secure um, element, but the, the issue I had was I kind of done it. I'd done everything, so. I think it's good to get to learn because you learn a lot of stuff you wouldn't learn in normal business. There's the political element, which is huge in local government, which you don't really get in uh, private businesses, like dealing with actual elected members and stuff like that. Um, and just a wide variety of services. You kind of get a taste of what you want to go in later on by talking to, if you, especially if you're doing business continuity, talk to finance you can talk to social care you can talk to it you can talk to the bin lorries like the bin contractors and stuff like that and kind of get an idea oh, i'm really interested in what you do two of our guests this year eric mcnulty and simon freeston raised concerns about the welfare of the crisis team i'm surprised we've not heard more about this we'll start with eric's thoughts he approaches this from a performance perspective. The decisions you make in crisis management can be the most important in your professional career, but the war room and the environment you're making those decisions in is far from perfect. Eric has recommendations on how to improve and optimize it. And so, and I was just talking to someone yesterday, he said, yeah, we were, our location was, was an interior location. So what we did was we forced everyone to go to a conference room to get food that had a lot of natural light and looked out onto some trees. And the only way you could get food was to go to that room. So they forced you to kind of go there where you could get some light. You could see some nature, which helps you. They made sure the food had a balance of things that were, you know, fruit, fruits and water in addition to some sweets and things. Um, but they were able to actually attend to some of these wellness things, which can sound sort of very squishy and soft and, oh, no, you know, we're not going to baby people here. But again, there's more and more evidence that shows this stuff improves performance, particularly in a longer duration event. And that's what you want and need. And so why not, you know, it's, it's not being cushy. It's being smart about how you treat your people because that's how they're going to perform well for you. For all of us, our performance degrades at some point. Um, you can only go so long before you start making poor decisions. You start being snappy with people. You start closing your mind off. And that's not what you want. So you as a, as a leader need to be able to model that and say, you know what, I'm leaving to get a, you know, it may only be three or four hours sleep, but I'm leaving to, to get a little bit of sleep. If you do that, others will then feel free to do it as well. And then you can tell people, okay, we're going we're gonna to shift personnel here. Somebody else is going to take over worrying about this for the next three, four hours. You get some rest. And then when you come back, you can take over. Um, but this is particularly challenging for small businesses where you don't have a lot of people. But it, it doesn't take more than, you know, in your third or fourth day of a, of, a, of a significant incident that people just start to get worn out and they aren't going to be able to sustain high performance. So your real goal there is how do I sustain high performance over the duration of this event and into the recovery phase? 
And that means being very attuned to yourself and the people around you. Simon Freeston's interest in responder welfare comes from personal experience. As part of Ealing Council, he was called in to assist with the Grenfell Tower fire response. Here, Simon describes what he was called in to do. Everyone, all hands to the pumps. We've got to get this sorted, get this under control, which is great if you're dealing with a normal incident, like we did, like most of our incidents at the, my previous organisation were kind of smaller incidents. So over within six to eight hours, sometimes two days, nothing major. This one, our role was five days, but that was five very intense days. So on the Sunday, we took over running of the Westway Assistance Centre to support the wider response. Because it's such a big, complex response, it started then getting divvying up between the local authorities. We jumped in, boom, we're in, we're working. Friday, we were completely shot. And you've got all your all three emergency planning professionals for the organization who've been working 18 hour days and you're knackered. And we, personally, we couldn't see this being, we couldn't see the issue because we were just dealing with task after task after task. And we should have taken that step back and gone, right, okay, let's rotor ourselves in properly. And I think that's, that was the big thing which I learned is um, you need to have, you need to take, have someone who has taken a step back um, and not involved in the day-to-day running of um, like answering all the questions and stuff like that. And I think it's about making sure that you've got adequate resourcing. It's always the best to be a bit over-resourced than under-resourced as we were. And that was our 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 own fault like we just we thought we could deal with it all and looking back that was a terrible idea (laughs) and was definitely something I kind in all the training I do now is I kind of bang home the welfare aspect of it being you will want to work for 24 hours it won't matter to you you won't be tired after 24 hours but two weeks later when you're still suffering from it, that's that's the issue. If you're told to work six hours, work six hours and then leave. It's very hard to leave because you don't want to leave, but you need to. You need to make sure not all your key people are there from hour one. Like if you've got two people who are as good as each other, send one of them home because you'll need them in six to eight hours to take over just so that person, the other person can get some rest. If it's looking like a protracted incident, I think one of the key things to do is rotor. So the main learning is that when it becomes clear that the crisis is not going to be resolved in a few hours, you need to plan your resources to be sustainable over a long period. Sometimes I think you've just got to deal with the worst case scenario. Yeah, it could be over in six hours, could also be over in five days so at the at the point you're getting near say a six or eight hour shift you need to then start making decisions to actually we need to rotate this we need to put people on standby 
get people ready to come in. You can always cancel that. You can always de-escalate, but it's very hard to escalate up when you've hit that 10-hour mark and you're like, well, it's two o'clock in the morning now. How are we going to get more people in to work on this? And this leads to Simon's thoughts on support for business continuity professionals. For the emergency services, it's a well-managed process. But for BC and emergency management professionals, there's less in place. I don't really know if it was widely publicised, but um, day two of Grenfell, as a local authority, we had a request from London Fire Brigade for mental health support for firefighters down at scene. And that went through that mechanism, so it went out to local authorities. So they kind of recognised we need more trauma care for our firefighters because it's been a very hard night. And that came through and everything. And and the police have their ways, the ambulance have their ways. They always do wash-ups after, with fire service, they always do a wash-up after a a nasty incident or they'll go to the fire station have a cup of tea have a chat talk through what's going on they have um counselors on call who can go down and talk to crews which have been particularly nasty because they are dealing they can be dealing with nasty nasty events um but what we noticed was there was really the same kind of um support available outside of the emergency services and talking to colleagues from across London, they'd had the same experiences and felt the same way. And it was quite interesting that we'd all kind of reacted the same way. So that kind of made it better. And it's no different in dealing with an incident. Incidents are so stressful. They can be so stressful. And people, as I've said, want to help, want to help. You don't notice the stress until... Six, six months down the line when it hits you like a brick wall and um, I think it's so important to have those support mechanisms not just for the immediate no one feels it in the immediacy you'll be fine you'll be on a high because you dealt with an incident it went well hopefully <laughs> um, but six months down the line if that support's not there, then that's when you start having an appropriate support. That's always the key thing. It's not just bring up a helpline. Um, it's actually having that ability to provide face-to-face time and stuff like that if they require, or being able to provide information of how they can gain access to supports. Um, I think that's so key in, in just keeping your keeping the staff staff retention after a big incident if you treat them well you're going to keep them if they feel on their own they're going to slowly disappear over time now for our real life disaster story this one from dean beaumont is about incidents happening at the worst possible times an incident occurring on a national holiday or just before a big event, used to be just bad luck. Now, cybercriminals are deliberately choosing those times for their attacks to create the most leverage. You now really need to be prepared for an incident happening at any time. Uh, that same month, we also had a we also had an outage because of there was a fire on a Sunday night in our headquarters that knocked out our power room. The power room then 
took down the data center and the rest of the campus. So we've got quite a big campus and that went down. And this was literally, you know, just before Christmas. And again, trying to get a hold of people on a Sunday night, you know, just before Christmas and recover from that in time to be able to open again for business on a Monday morning was was massively challenging, particularly given that that particular weekend was the Derby match between Newcastle and Sunderland, and that that campus is is in Newcastle. So most of the people that you need to reinstate a power room or a data center or on-site services, those those guys all watching the football and you know drinking. So how do you get all those guys to to then respond and be able to work competently and safely? Well, the answer is, you know, you, you can't, it, it, you know, it's a challenge. So that plays into delays and some of the assumptions one makes of if this happens, we will do this, you know, get blown out of the water and you have to kind of go back a bit uh, to thinking on your feet. It takes longer to find people, use contractors, and uh, of course, then thinking about any kind of workarounds you can do as well, you know, get to try and get things back up and running again. So yeah, that, that was certainly interesting. Not, not being able to get hold of people is probably one of the key challenges when these things happen out of hours. We're leaving you today with advice from James Krask about making use of time and working within constraints. How can you squeeze tests and exercises in to make sure they happen instead of trying to carve out half a day? See you next time. So two, two, two techniques I tend to use. The first is in the plan itself or the plans. If you can as closely as possible mirror existing governance and decision-making processes that, that the exec and management teams use on a day-to-day basis, the better it is because everyone's familiar with them. So that actually reduces the amount of training you have to do um, from, from the first point of view. It just, it, you know, all you're doing really is using the same structures in a sl- you know, slightly unusual environment, three in the morning or something. Um, and then the second um, uh, technique I, uh, I tend to use is if 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 you can't get enough time to actually run an exercise, you know, a really good exercise, which will take a couple of hours if you do it properly, then you can explore ways of 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 linking exercises or basic exercises on the back of other executive level conversations. So just about every exec takes a risk report, risk register every quarter, say, and they might do a deep dive on a particular risk every every quarter. Well, if you're doing a deep dive on that risk, don't just look at the red and amber green scorings and challenge management over that. Actually use that as an opportunity to talk through how the exec would respond to it with the plan in the background. It takes 10 minutes. And you did if you did every single risk on that risk register, the top ten throughout the year, then you're in a better position than than you were previously. Now, obviously, the ideal world is you actually get nice, uh, yeah, a significant amount of time and, and focus time on, on on a crisis exercise, but that's not always possible. Mm-hmm.